Coming up on today's podcast. The challenge I see here, and you and I briefly chatted about this, I have two little daughters and they're going to grow up, is that the baselines are shifting, meaning what you and I believe to be a good human interaction, that concept probably doesn't even exist for my daughters. Right? They, they, they don't have a frame of reference to know what they're missing or what they're not missing for that matter, right? And that's my biggest challenge. Is that a good thing or not? So here's the thing. There are lots of topics or conversations that we don't explore or go deep on. I'm Jane Gunn, the Barefoot Mediator, and this is a show where we have some of those conversations and explore how they are impacting society and even humanity right now. In today's episode, I am speaking with Fouad Dabiri. He's the former director of engineering at Twitter, and we're speaking about a topic that I am curious and also slightly fearful about, and that is the rapid advance in technology, including AI and the metaverse, and the benefits and risks to humanity. So, welcome, Fouad. Thank you, Jane. Glad to be here. Now, you're in California, I know, so we've a, a, a time difference here. So I'm really, really grateful to you for, for stepping up at breakfast time to have a chat with me. And I know it's going to be, I've been really looking forward to this. I know it's going to be brilliant because we come from such different worlds. And uh, I'm so curious to learn about your world and ask you some questions about how it's going to impact us all. So can you start off by just explaining who you are, and where you come from, and what your passion for your work is. Absolutely. Uh, excited to be here, Jane. So as you mentioned, my name is Fouad. I am currently a uh, director of engineering at Roblox within the Economy Org, uh, particularly with the aim of building a vibrant and inclusive economy within the metaverse. Prior to Roblox, I was the director of engineering at Twitter, or as it's known to be X right now, yes. uh, leading the uh, growth organization. Yes. Uh, and right before joining Twitter, uh, I founded a, a startup in the healthcare AI space mm -hmm. uh, with the aim of seeing if we can best utilize information from patients post-discharge to predict adverse events that they might be experiencing and use that prediction as a way to help the care team intervene in time. Utilizing technology and AI in areas like healthcare has always been quite fascinating and, and to me, I think there's a lot of potential there. And before that, I was a software engineer in different companies. By way of education, I've studied computer science. I got my PhD from UCLA. And originally I am from Iran, where I did my bachelor's in electrical engineering. I live with my wife and two daughters here in Bay Area, California. Yes, that's brilliant, brilliant. Um, so if I would tell me then, I've got lots of questions about what you just said, but what, where does this passion for AI, machine learning and, and all of that come from? Is it something you've had since you were very young? So when I was much younger, let's say when I was a teenager, what I was very excited about was the concept of algorithm design in computer science theory. Uh, for example, combinatorics, right? Back then, AI, the principle of it existed, which fundamentally is a lot of uh, algebra, right? But its application and utilization was just getting started. But the idea of algorithm design in which we use some theoretical computer science or math that would enable us to make optimal or efficient decisions was very appealing. It was mostly at the theoretical level. 
And then later I started getting exposed to the application of these. And it was quite fascinating that, for instance, graph theory algorithm can be applied to placement and routing in chip design, something that, that on the surface they had no direct correlation with, or how computational geometry can be applicable to power optimization in some uh, electric car circuits. So that's how I got into this more and more throughout my studies and then when I started working. In the industry, though, uh, uh, let's say around 15 years ago or so, applications of AI started to be proven very effective. And the main reason was that arguably there was a big jump from traditional decision-making to machine learning-based decision-making, and the impact was huge. So that's how I got into it. Uh, you've had some really high-profile roles, haven't you? I mean, Twitter or X, as we now call it, uh, that was a very high-profile role for you, wasn't it? Uh, it was. It was very uh, uh, exciting, for sure. And as you know, X was divided between the pre-acquisition and post-acquisition. And I got the opportunity to work with great people. And specifically, the growth organization was a very high-impact org, which has always been an interest of mine. So... It was a great team, and we were able to make good contributions to to the platform. And did you meet personally with Elon? Uh, Yes, I reported to Elon uh, for about seven months. Oh, fantastic. So, yes, I'm sure you've got some interesting uh, sort of background there on on the whole perspective of... It was a very interesting experience and definitely very, very educational. I truly enjoyed uh, interacting and working with him. Fantastic. So, uh, gosh, I've got some questions. When you say expanding and building the metaverse economy, can you explain that to me? So, and I know we have heard the term metaverse quite often in the past few years, but fundamentally, it, in my view, at least, it's about how the manifestation of our life in the virtual world, right? And that is already is happening, uh, bits and pieces here and there. But the fundamental idea is that there is this universe that is being developed or created, or multiple universes for that matter, where we actually have a, a identity there, we have a, a representation of ourselves and our life in that world, right? And it can, the, the nice thing about that is, I mean, there are some risks as well, but the nice thing is that that world potentially can be the dis- distillation of reality that we always wanted, right? So it, it, the metaverse gives individuals the opportunity to really build what they believe is the most enjoyable or beneficial. And of course, as I said, it, it comes with some uh, concerns as well. So fundamentally, when you think of it as a universe, right, many of the principles that we have in real world are potentially applicable as uh, to that world as well. And one is obviously economy, right? What would the economy look like? Uh, what are the macro and microeconomic principles in such a world? How does trade marketplace would be? So that the idea is to build the foundation uh, in a way that any individual or any entity in that world can have a healthy economy uh, activity, right? So that's the ultimate goal. So does that mean you do that as an individual or can you do that as groups? And is it therefore a way of experimenting with ideas without trialing them on the real economy? <laughs> so there the are two pieces to your question. So the individuals or entities presented in a metaverse is very similar to what we have uh, in real world, right? Meaning we have individuals who also have a manifestation and presence in, in the metaverse. We have entities, groups, or corporations that they have a similar presence, right? And therefore, 
the economy is going to be applicable to all of them. Uh, for and the, for your second question is that in general, in the space of let's say software engineering, one very common way of trying how to build things is by running uh, experiments. That after the offline analysis or hypothesis testings, the idea is to very carefully see if we are planning to make a change. Is that change something is positive or not? So very similar to randomized trials in healthcare, right? Yes, it does impact the real people, but you do it under a very controlled environment, a small group, and gradually ramp it up and measure its impact, and that's how you roll things out. Mm -hmm. So, yes, I was interested, therefore, you know, if you wanted to try out a new idea, for example, a new economic model, could you, could a group of people or a group of people from government even or from an organization get together, try that out and see what the consequences were without having to experiment on us? <laughs> so, uh, with the... in, in case of Metaverse, so the experimentation happens and those who participate in Metaverse, right? So it's limited to those users. And then uh, we won't start an experimentations unless there is supporting evidence or data that this is something that is going to move things in potentially a positive direction. Uh, and that even that happens in a very gradual basis with guardrails in place. So if it's, if the results start deviating from what we were hoping to see, right? then it gives us the opportunity to roll things back, right? And always minimize the impact uh, uh, that, that it has on the participants. Well, I'm glad there's some guardrails in place because I guess that's sort of moving on to sort of questions that I'd like to ask you about how we protect that. But let's just talk about the AI in healthcare because I think that's something people could relate to. And certainly when we talked earlier, you you gave me the, this example of using AI um, for post was it post-surgical patients, but people who've gone home from a hospital and then you can monitor them in this way. So perhaps you could just explain that because I could relate really well to that use of AI. Absolutely. So uh, as you said, the particular focus that we had was on post-surgical for patients, primarily with chronic conditions, that they get hospitalized and then they, they discharge. One common example is, is congestive heart failure, yes. which is a big uh, uh, challenge for, for the society at the individual level and also at the family and, and, and broader settings. The idea was that when somebody gets discharged and they go home, we start monitoring certain vitals and as well as some questions that we ask the patient and use that to predict whether this individual is at risk of being rehospitalized or experiencing an adverse event. An adverse event has a broad definition here. We had some clinical trials uh, that we did jointly with UCLA Medical School and Nursing School, and we were, we were able to show that, yes, it is possible to make those predictions, at least by some degree of certainty. So that's how we started uh, building the company. Now, uh, to me, one of the motivating factors to do this was following. I think technology, especially in the hardware space, have made significant contributions to the healthcare industry. When you look at imaging devices, for instance, those MRI, CT scan, those are amazing. Or X-ray, of course. But when it comes to software and AI, I think the contributions have been very, very minimal, especially on the care delivery side. Uh, probably in the finance, there are some contributions. So that's what we did. And, and uh, 
we had a product and we had patients rolled in, which was quite exciting. We would provide predictions. We knew what kind of impact we make. But the business is very, very challenging. Uh, and it has less to do with technology and more to do with incentives. At least in healthcare, and I mean, I might be biased here a little bit, but it really everything revolves around the financial aspect of the service, right? Uh, and that makes things very, very uncomfortable uh, and unpleasant at the, at time. The question is how you maximize profit. That's that's the sad truth. Yeah, and we have that challenge here in the UK. And I also wonder, going back to this AI, um, is it predictive or is it actually based on real time information about a specific patient? So it is uh, absorbing the real-time information and then making a prediction about the next two weeks. Okay. And at what stage does a human being step in? Because I think our, our fear, and certainly my sort of here on a human level is, you know, where do we get taken over by machines and predictive? Uh, and, and where does a human step in and, and we get that care that we feel we need? In healthcare, almost immediately. In healthcare, because of regulations, the idea that, there will be an automated intervention if you are not there yet, uh, both technologically and also, again, from a regulation. So the system would immediately alert or notify the care team. And at that point, it was the uh, care professionals who would come in, look at the data and, and start the intervention process. So the, there was no interaction in that sense with the patients by an automated system. Okay. That's why... They would we were referred to as decision support systems, right? Meaning we would provide information that would healthcare healthcare professional make a decision on what to do. Yes, and when you say the sort of whole thing is driven by finance, do you mean the sort of whole initiative of having this kind of pr predictive uh, tool in place is is driven mostly by because it saves money? Is that is that the ultimate driver of this technology? Mm -hmm. That definitely is one of the main main angles. But even utilizing this service, the first question is, okay, how do you pay for this new, let's say, technology? Who is going to pay for it? Is it the patient, the hospital, or insurance? So there's a big debate there, right? And to your point about saving money, who is it saving money for? Is it the insurance or is it the hospital, right? Because hospital gets paid for these services. If it's the insurance, then we need to go and talk to the insurance to promote this solution to the hospitals, whereas our customers are hospitals. So it's a very convoluted and complex uh, situation. And of course, we have a different system, uh, healthcare system here in the UK, but we still have these sort of circular arguments about, and particularly actually with elderly patients being discharged from hospital, because there's a boundary between healthcare and social care um, and they come out of different pots of money. So, you know, you get these challenges. And of course, some people have private health care and other people don't. So there are always boundaries and different pots of money that get in the way of some of the advances, I think. It should not. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, Jane, I'm a little bit biased in a non-positive way toward the system. But yeah. I think it's overly complicated. It's even very difficult for an individual, let's say me as a patient, to even understand the dynamics or the cost breakdowns and all those things. And that, that's, I think, has been a big burden uh, on any entity who has been meaning to uh, make some advancement in this space, especially with technology. 
Yes, I agree. And 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 so my big question, uh, uh, what we sort of talked about when we were leading up to this, is what are the benefits and dangers to humanity of all this development in machine learning and AI? Because, you know, you're explaining and you're very passionate about the benefits. But I'm the kind of person who, if I go to the supermarket, will not go to the automatic checkout. And if I go to the station, I really would like someone there to serve me with my ticket. So I'm a little bit sceptical about how far we can go with some of this technology. I'm really um, keen to preserve, you know, the human interface, the human connection where we can and yet still benefit from that. And I'm wondering how far you think that's possible. So I think there are two and these are two components to it. One is how AI might impact the society and create an imbalanced, uh, let's say, distribution of power and wealth, which is happening already, right? Those who can utilize or have access to AI benefit the most, and then that shifts the resources or equity, basically, within the society which I think is a real problem. The second piece is that how does it impact our day-to-day -day life uh, where it provides utility, but at the, supposedly, and then at the same time, it's taking away from the human experience, right? And as I'm sure you know, Jane, it's more than AI. It's just advancements in technology in general, right? Sometimes uh, the manifestation of AI in these things is actually very minimal, but it's growing, right? There is... Now, playing the devil's advocate is another component to it as well, right? Let's assume you consider this a human interaction. And this was this would not have been possible without the advancement technology and AI, right? So it is helping on that front as well, but then it's taking away. I think, again, most of those advancements is uh, uh, primarily motivated by financial incentives. That's the reality. Uh, if... A company wants to survive, then it means they're going after the optimization for for financial metrics. Challenge I see here, and you and I briefly chatted about this. I have two little daughters, and they're going to grow up. Is that the baselines are shifting, meaning what you and I believe to be a good human interaction? That concept probably doesn't even exist for my daughters. Right? They 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 don't have a frame of reference to know what they're missing or what they're not missing, for that matter. Right? They're and that's my biggest challenge. Is that a good thing or not? Because let's say I I really value human interaction, as you, you mentioned, maybe in different settings. But if my daughters are not have never experienced that or they don't know what it means, right? Dude, are they really missing anything? <laughs> that's a right? Very philosophical question, Matt. Yes. <laughs> and and I really don't know. I mean, because it could be that. You and I have biases. We prefer what we experience, right? Uh, it's very difficult to say in an absolute terms that whether that is the writing or not. The, the part that I'm concerned about is how AI is taking away the ability to think and make decisions. Yes, I agree. Yes. I think that that's really, the, the again, I might be biased, but I do value that the ability for people to think and decide. And we see that a lot. We are, we are exposed to that the multiple times in a day whether it's shopping online for instance or watching a tv show or what have you right and that is really bothersome I, I do benefit from it i like recommendations i've i've worked in recommendations right uh, the, but the fact that it takes away 
making a decision or thinking, uh, that that's a little bit scary to me. Or even manipulates or coerces us to make a decision or buy something that we might not. I mean, this is kind of new, you know, really, when I was much younger, there would have been no such, you know, you'd have had advertising, but you wouldn't have had constant, you know, when you log on to social media, that you would have something that predicts your choices or your preferences that was. So I think we got used to, or perhaps even subliminally, been programmed with but haven't noticed a different way of being persuaded to make decisions and I, I do worry about that because I'm a lawyer and a mediator which is all about critical thinking that I wonder to what extent the general population and our children lose that ability to think creatively and critically. Yes and I think that is a very real danger. Uh, uh, especially when there is ill intentions behind it, and which is a real problem. Yeah. One subcategory of that is misinformation or manipulation of thought. This ha this is happening. Yeah. Now, I don't know who is right or wrong here, but clearly it has influenced, let's say, political elections in the past, uh, or even uh, spending patterns of consumers. Uh, everything. I think that's a real problem. And especially if there's bad intention, behind these technologies, then they can be very, very dangerous. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. And it becomes very difficult to say, doesn't it, or I feel, you know, what, it, again, I've got my lawyer's hat on to say, well, what is the definition of misinformation or disinformation? And how do you decide? Or should somebody else decide that? Or should we decide that with our critical thinking hat on and say, actually, I'm going to be able to weigh up different information that comes to me and I don't want someone else to withdraw that information and decide I shouldn't even see it because they decide that it's misinformation so I I find that to be a you know the, a dilemma as well and and I'm struggling in this particular topic because I think it's very important my struggle is the following I I would like to rely on the quote-unquote experts opinion and then the question is who is an expert how you knew yeah. that because yeah. There are areas that I know I will not be able to make a fair assessment of the information because I have uh, biases. Like one example is, of course, everything about COVID, right? I'm very cautious. Obviously, I, I care about my daughters. I have elderly parents and all those things. So if I want, if I was to choose among different information without looking at the source, that bias of me being cautious will impact in how I interpret information. It will, it will not be uh, unbiased. And that's the challenge. But then I don't know which experts today I should listen to. And it's gotten really worse. It's gotten much more extreme in the past right. few years. And, and you know, our, our, the other question that I ask is to what extent are the experts biased as well? And, you know, then you've got to really go quite deep to discover, well, who are the experts, as you said? You know, who's funding them? Who? What are their biases? So... I think it's a very, very complex question. I haven't really got to the bottom of exploring it myself, but I would like to because um, I feel it's a very, very important one for the future. Very true. Yeah, I agree. I think that that's. And that's so, key. one of the terms I've come across, which I find really interesting, I, I go back to your point about, you know, would your children know any different if, you know, for example, you and I haven't met. Um, we've been blessed to meet uh, now on Zoom and uh, we're able to have this conversation and record this podcast because of technology. And that's amazing, because if we 
spent time trying to find time in our diaries and you'd have to fly or whatever, we'd never have done it. So I think that's a miracle. It's brilliant. Um, and the question I always ask people when I meet them is, how tall do you think I am? <laughs> because we just don't know. You see, I, de I don't have a sense of you viscerally, physically. You know, I can see you, I can see your face, um, but I can't really experience you in the same physical way as if we were in the room together. And that's true of my work too as a mediator. It very much relies on connection and communication, which is not impossible, but difficult, different online. And so it, again, if you go back to COVID, my little granddaughters who we couldn't see for a while got used to seeing us in a screen on the screen or in a mostly on their parents phone and so they thought yeah. we existed in the phone and then we would meet them and they'd say well no like wait i thought you were in there why are you here so that was confusing for them and then they get to meet us personally personally i have to say you can't replace hugs with your granddaughters online i know you know i think there is something about that physical connection and making eye contact that you can't replace um, and I've come across the term recently, which I, I find very um, interesting in thinking about human flourishing. And so if you use that as a criteria or a benchmark to say, how far does anything that we're um, doing that's different, promoting you know, new machine learning, new technology, AI, does it promote human flourishing, which is very different from the financial bottom line? And I think that, that that's a very uh, fascinating term. I need to familiarize myself. But uh, I think if that's a valid objective, which by the sound of it, it is, going back to the earlier conversation, this is how potentially we can prevent some disaster outcomes, which is if we can utilize technology that can figure out, let's say, an AI machine, that can figure out how to promote human flourishing, right? And put that in front of the other AI, right? And maybe this is how we create the balance. Mm -hmm. uh, meaning, I do think at the end of the day, to mitigate the negative impact of technology or AI, the most powerful solution probably will be an AI-driven solution as well, which... Yeah. It might introduce a cycle of, okay, what about this AI is bias and all those, which is true. But because of the capabilities it has, the scale it can get to, so on and so forth, that probably is the most effective way of actually trying to create a balance. Then, therefore, the next question would be, how can we really understand human flourishing and make sure uh, we build systems or AI or technology that tries to promote that? That's fascinating. I heard someone speak the other day, going back to children and grandchildren, who um, was saying, you know, what we've got to do as humans is to train AI as if we were training our children to become good adults. So it is like, you know, what's the input that you have to put into a child that it becomes a mature, responsible adult? We've got to sort of regard <laughs> our, our responsibility with AI the same. I'm sure not everybody has that approach, but... Uh, I wonder if that could feed into the human flourishing narrative. I think it, it certainly does. Again, uh, the, the challenge is, do we believe that, like as a parent, I'm not fully confident that everything I do is necessarily the, the right way of 
educating my children, right? And when you look at how society has turned, I'm sure there are many cases that you can, by high confidence, say, no, the path for somebody to get here has not been the ideal one, right? So then again, there is a question as, okay, what do we think is the right way of educating uh, uh, children, right? And uh, theoretically speaking, that's where AI comes into place, meaning in a theoretical sense, AI can look at all the children who have grown and that are now teenagers, let's say, and use some measures to say which of these upbringings are better than the others, if we can make that claim and assessment, and then go back and see what kind of information have been provided and use that as a basis of basically coming up a, a coming up with a model. Possibly, uh, I'm yeah, I'm interested and intrigued by that, but but I I also wonder that then you end up with a a model or a framework that everybody gets channeled into when in fact the diversity and difference is the thing that makes us human. That um, is very and, true. Yeah, and that that is the problem with with a lot of AI models, right? That even in the recommendations we see that that it gets converged to very few outcomes, and you lose diversity. Uh, uh, and sometimes even we prefer that. For example, one challenge is that I'm sure you you use different uh, news websites or news outlets, and it learns what you like and all those things. And after a while, I'm looking at my uh, news feed, and I realize I almost agree with everything I'm seeing. Yes, because it's programmed, yes. Uh, and that's bad, right? Absolutely. It might be pleasant, but it certainly is not good, right? And that goes back to the kind of bias uh, and diversity that you're mentioning. Yes. So I, I actually do passionately believe that we do need diversity of thought in particular. When we talk about uh, EDI uh, and so on, I, I'm thinking, it, it, you know, it's not necessarily about where do you come from geographically or the colour of your skin or whatever. It's much more about do you or, or uh, uh, includes diversity of thinking. Uh, do you have those skills for diverse thinking and I think one of the speakers I had on my podcast earlier in the year was making a, a differentiation between linear thinking and lateral thinking. And, you know, I wonder how much machines are able to replicate that, the, the you know, the breadth of thinking that, uh, uh, you know, a critical creative human thinker would have. Uh, and also all the previous life experience that we feed into our thinking doesn't exist in a machine, does it? It doesn't see AI and machines are clearly are very intelligent by some dis, de, definition, but also are very primitive, right? And the the, the premise is the following: the reason that, for example, looking at the news feed uh, example, you converge to a state that let's say you agree with everything, is because it is trying to optimize how many of these articles you read, right? That's why it's very primitive. The objective function is very simple. The challenge is it's hard to define what uh, diversity is in terms of mathematical, let's say, objective function. What is a good amount of diversity, right? And it's very difficult. But again, going back to the news example, is it that if out of every three articles, you see one from the opposing view? Because you certainly don't like it, you disagree with it, I and mean, you may not even read it, right? So that's the challenge. Because we use very basic objective functions, uh, uh, for AI, that's how we get more and more uh, biases. Gosh, 
you really got me thinking forward so much about so many things. <laughs> uh, it's a very deep, it's a very deep topic, isn't it, really? To go it is fascinating. It's really exciting. So yeah. I had a, another question for you. Um, what do you believe that humanity ultimately needs right now? I think I've, I've probably witnessed that in different settings, but I think empathy is the biggest thing that I think humanity needs. Uh, this is something that I see less and less of it in different settings. And I do strongly believe if we can promote and ensure that empathy exists in different settings that can help the humanity. That I believe is the main thing. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's brilliant that you should come up with that because that again is at the heart of the work that I do in mediation is empathy. If you can under listen to and understand another person, then you are, you know, you're you're a much better way forward to connecting with them, communicating, collaborating and resolving conflict which is what we all need to do these days <laughs> more than anything. So I wondered then as a sort of final question for what each, what you believe each of us can do as individuals to survive and thrive and, and help them, you know, help the world to survive and thrive at the time we're in, which seems to be very complex and um, conflict ridden really. Yeah. So my answer is again biased towards what I would tell my daughters, which is a whole different story, right? Mm -hmm. But I, what I would like them to do is to, uh, uh, first of all, read a lot of history if they can. I think that's it. But I think I'm really hoping that they would try to educate themselves as best as possible and get better in problem solving and decision making. Uh, because to your earlier point, at the end of the day, if we are able to make better decisions based on the information that we are given and not rely on decisions that are already made, I think eventually that will converge to a much better state of being for humanity. So decision-making and problem-solving, I think, was one of the key things that we should strive to get better at. Wonderful. Uh, and I would agree for my granddaughters as well, who I think are similar age to your to your daughters, mine of five and three. I think that's similar ages to yours. Exactly, three and a half and five. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, what would your final point be? What would what would the final sort of takeaway you'd like to to leave our audience members with, Fouad? I think my my fi final thinking, which is really what I'm thinking about, is is very much related to this particular conversation, and that is. What I'm feeling right now is I do not get the opportunity to talk about this topic for, let's say, 40 minutes straight. This is something that we think about it here and there, but we never sit down, even to, to ourselves, and really focus on a, such important topic, right? So my main takeaway is that, and I, and I hope I will be able to do that, that when it comes to such important uh, issues and, and, and topics, we would spend more time and focus on it and start really understanding what is happening. Because before you know it, things will change and evolve around us, and we won't even notice those changes, and we simply get used to it. And then at that point, it's too late to even recognize what has happened, whether good or bad. Thank you. Um, I agree that uh, it, I think it's really important that we, you know, we do focus on those things. And I've been delighted to have you on the show Thank you, Jane. Thank it's, it's, you very much. Can you tell people where they can find you? I, I know you're on Twitter, Oryx. 
find you there. Uh, but where else would people find you if they wanted to contact you or find out more about your work? So uh, the, I, I do have a Google site page with links to the social media, but Twitter is actually the best entry point. Uh, my handle is at Fadaviri because there's a link in my bio, which also points to the other places that I have uh, uh, online presence. Okay, brilliant. So thank you so much for your thank time. You so much, I feel we should have this conversation again or have it. Absolutely. Next Hopefully time. in person next time. Yes, let's do that. <laughs> I think it would be brilliant to organize something bigger, actually, where we could really delve deeply into this issue, because to me, chatting to you twice now, it comes across as something that's absolutely vital in the times we're in. Absolutely. That would be great. Thank you for listening to this podcast if you enjoyed this episode please share it with your friends and colleagues please do subscribe to the barefoot mediator podcast series and if you would like to access my free video series for managing in times of change challenge and crisis and download a pdf copy of my book how to beat bedlam in the boardroom and boredom in the bedroom please go to janegunn.co.uk slash video the link is in the show notes